So if you weren't here last week, we introduced Titus and we learned basically that uh, the whole theme of Titus is that when the gospel is applied to the church, the church shines. It looks like Jesus and the church shining is the best missionary strategy there ever was. So uh, Paul is writing to Titus. He's a, a laborer in Crete. Uh, Paul has planted the church uh, and left and left Titus to arrange things. Crete was a, a famously immoral culture. And they've been influenced to, uh, about, by, by false teachers. So uh, today, what we're going to learn is one of the first things Titus has to do to apply the gospel to the church is to apply the gospel to how the church is led. Um, the idea here is when you get the leaders right, the church follows suit. So have you ever wondered um, what God says about leaders in the church or how you should relate to them? Or have you ever wondered uh, how that amazingly talented, crowd-drawing, gifted pastor fails morally and wrecks his church? Or um, if you've been that typical American who enjoys church but does not want to submit to its authority, uh, this passage is for you. Let's read the scriptures. Titus chapter 1, we'll read verses uh, 5 to 16. This is why I left you at Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and if his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may, be, they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, this morning, just pray as we uh, read about your will um, in regard to how churches are led. We just pray you give us joy. Pray you help us to submit to that, to arrange our lives and churches accordingly. Uh, help us to understand this passage and apply it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, true story. Uh, one day, a psychologist was walking by a school, an elementary school, in an urban setting. Uh, and this school had a big, tall fence to protect the children uh, from cars and all that kind of stuff. And the psychologist, uh, in his enlightenment, decided that this fence was hindering the children from exploring their boundaries and really, like, developing their potential and, like, you know, self-actualizing, okay? And so, somehow, this... Uh, 
very smart psychologist convinced the school administration in the middle of an urban city to take the fence down. What do y'all think happened? Well, uh, no kids got ran over by cars, actually. Uh, there was no danger because the kids were too scared to play. They actually just huddled in the middle of the playground. They didn't have boundaries. They didn't have structure. It actually hindered their freedom and joy. Structure sometimes can create freedom and joy, not just hinder it. Uh, we, see it we see it in nature, too. There are all sorts of plants and vines that are designed for structure. Um, you plant a vine in a field, it will just do this haphazard little growth. You plant it by a trellis, which is a, a wooden structure designed for vines, or a tree. It grows, it thrives, it bears fruit. Structure and order can give life. Um, we live in a really independent age. We live in an age that says, buck authority, do your own thing, uh, question authority, um, make your own decisions. Uh, our attitude generally is that people in leadership should be questioned. Um, they, they, if, if they say something I don't like, I can just leave, right? We live in a very independent age. We, uh, we, sometimes we approach church like Chick-fil-A, right? It's this, it better be excellent or I'm taking my business somewhere else, right? Um, sometimes when we serve, we're like independent contractors. Uh, we're happy to enjoy serving, um, but we don't have any commitment. And, and this passage is really uh, kind of prophetic to our Western independent mindset. It says that uh, the structure of leadership um, that we are so prone to resist is actually the structure in which the church will thrive. Leaders in the church that are submitted to by their congregation, they are the fence that surrounds the playground. They're the trellis that helps the vine grow. Um, to get the church right, first you have to get the gospel right, then you have to apply the gospel to the church's leaders. So for Titus in Crete, there are two things he has to do to get the gospel right with leaders. He has to appoint godly leaders and rebuke ungodly leaders. We'll uh, walk through this really briefly. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, <clears throat> This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So this little this word here, uh, put everything in order, just uh, I don't know if you guys are like this, but I um, will let my house get dirty, okay, and disorganized. And you kind of, you've walked in before, and it's like everything is all over the place. And you don't realize it, but your blood pressure just kind of goes up, and you just kind of live in the mess. And then finally, one day, you break down, and you clean everything. And you walk on your floor barefoot, and it's clean, and you know where everything is, and you go, ah. That's the idea of this word, okay? Everything's in order. It's in the right place. It's good. It's right. And uh, Paul's instructing Titus that he's going to put things right in the church by appointing elders. Just notice there's an and here. Sometimes ands uh, can be, if, if you care about grammar, it can be adverbial. It can mean like, hey, you should put things into order, namely, like here's how you put things into order. You appoint elders. He's going to order the church. is not a good curriculum. It's not a great small group ministry. It's the right people leading. Um, and this word elder, uh, this word is used, uh, there are lots of terms in the New Testament that generally mean the same thing. Pastor uh, is in a different part of the New Testament. Uh, overseer is in verse 7. Um, but elder, overseer, pastor, all, all, those, all those refer to one 
primary role, and that's just the teaching leaders of the church. And we see this played out in lots of ways in denominations in our day, but primarily uh, the way it works is God has called certain men to be shepherds and leaders over the church. They teach, they guard, they help. Okay, so first main idea, all right? If Titus is to get the church in a place where it can be healthy, where it can grow, first he has to appoint godly leaders. We'll look at who these godly leaders are and talk about why that matters to us, whether we are leaders or not. So um, I'm going to give you guys three characteristics of these leaders. The first one will be a little offensive and take a few minutes to explain, and then we will talk about the other ones. Okay, so first, uh, these godly elders are men. Just notice that. I know, again, in our day, that can be very offensive. People disagree about this, but notice uh, notice how many times he comes into this uh, passage. He's the husband his children, um, he must not be. Just notice that all the all the adjectives and verbs here are masculine. Um, throughout the New Testament, uh, leaders are, are are men. Notice that Jesus, okay, when he came, he overturned everything, right? The law, everything, right? But he picked twelve men to lead the church. Now, girls, uh, this doesn't mean you guys are sidelined. We'll get there in a second, okay? But um, I do want to just kind of back up and talk about why men leading the church is a good thing and why our culture kind of falsely calls it a really bad thing. And then we'll talk about some application. So um, just we have to agree that historically most cultures have really treated women terribly. Uh, in fact, my wife and I were watching this uh, great little TV show in PBS called Poldark. It's about this little uh, back in the good old days, right, when there was still morality, right? It's in a post-revolutionary war, Great Britain, uh, compelling main character. But here's the thing. They portray uh, life pretty well pre-women's uh, rights era. Uh, husbands cheated on their wives with impunity. Women's had no say in the community or in their families or decisions over their life. We, just, we should just all agree that that's terrible, right? That's wrong. That's not God's will, okay? Um, we should say publicly that the husband who abuses his wife and then quotes Ephesians 5 to her, there's a special place in hell for him, all right? I want to be real clear about that. Um, however, uh, and we should be thankful, okay, we should be thankful that there's, a, there's been a movement in the last hundred years, all right, there's been a movement in our culture, uh, start in the West, right, to give women significant rights, the right to vote, the right to have jobs, the right to have say, the right to divorce um, ungodly abusive husbands, okay, those are, those are good things, right, um, maybe not divorce itself, but the idea of, of protecting a woman from an abusive man, that's a good thing, okay, um, however, that same movement that has given us all those good things that we should celebrate, right, has also given us this idea that to be equal to men, women have to be identical to men. Do y'all see that? I think one thing is beautiful and right, that, that women should be equal to men. They should be treated equally to men under the law. They should be protected. They should be, they should be allowed to have jobs, right, allowed to live their lives, right? That's, that's a good thing. But, but the movement that gave us that, that's a good thing, has also given us this idea that's not in the scriptures, that equality means doing, every, like this that old song, anything you can do, I can do better. Remember that song, right? Any, you know, it's a girl and a guy singing to each other. Like, like we've, we've decided, just as a culture, we haven't examined it in light of the scriptures. We've just decided that that's what equality must mean. It must mean we all do the same things. And um, so just know, uh, if like... My bride, who I love very much, 
this might be the first time you're hearing this from the scriptures, and like her, you're like, okay, if you're a girl like that, it's okay, right? Um, it's all right. There's, that, that resistance has been built into us in some, in some ways. I will say, too, just sidebar of a sidebar here, okay? Our culture is kind of schizophrenic about this. Like, for example, uh, when the Titanic sank, what, 60, 70 years ago? Um, I, think, I think it's seven-eighths of the survivors were women and children. Most of the boats did not have a single man on the boat because uh, the guys said the women and children go first. They died. And we, we love that, right? Like, men should sacrifice for women. Right? That, that's, that's, that we love that. We still have that idea. Um, anyways, but I do want to uh, just really quickly, before we get back to the text, um, I do want to say something to the girls. Um, maybe you are a girl who is particularly gifted in leadership. Maybe you're assertive, decisive. You're good at making decisions. You, you feel like you can even teach the scriptures, okay? And you're like, does this just sideline me from exercising my gifts? Does this mean that I can't, I can't lead? It does not mean that at all. Um, the difference is context. If you're, if you're someone here who's a girl who has the gift of leadership or who's assertive or has a personality that is conducive to leading, if you're good at teaching the scriptures, God absolutely wants you to exercise those gifts in the church. The only question is context. Right? It's kind of it's kind of like the Garden of Eden. There's one fruit you can't eat. There's one thing you can't do, and that is preach on Sundays as a pastor. Really, right? Everything else, if you're if if you're naturally gifted at leadership, if you're good at teaching, do that. Teach other women. In fact, in Titus two, right? The people called to teach in Titus two, interestingly enough, are the women. Uh, verse three: Older women likewise are to be reverent behavior, not slanderers, slaves. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So all that to say, right, the idea that the pastoral office, the teaching leaders of the church at large is reserved for men, does not mean that a woman with gifts cannot exercise them. So I had to take that sidebar because we live in America in the 21st century. But... um, Back to the text. So first, these leaders are men. Second, these leaders are, they, they have gospel lives. Their lives reflect the gospel of Jesus. Uh, just notice first, um, in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, it's repeated in verse 7, God's, the, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Uh, this means there's nothing, there's no handle in their life that's sinful that you can grab onto. There's nothing that sticks out, and they're not perfect, okay? They're in progress, right? But there's nothing in their lives that you can say, what a hypocrite, right? Um, They're above reproach. Uh, First, this gospel life is a blameless family life. Uh, If this person is married with children, he is radically devoted to his wife, a husband of one wife. You can translate that uh, a one-woman man. I'm sure you guys have heard Buster say that, but the idea that he's passionately committed to his wife like Jesus is to the church. His children are believers. Uh, the idea there could be actually believers or just faithful. Their conduct's not crazy. Like, a, like, like, the, like our Father in Heaven, He disciplines His children well. Um, so first, He's blameless in His family life. And His gospel life next marks the way He relates to others. Okay, look, look at verse, uh, middle of verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He does not think He's the center of the universe. He's a guy you can confront. He's not going to get angry and blow up at you when you, uh, when you t- tell him something you don't want to hear. 
He's not, a, he's not a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. He's not enslaved by alcohol or money. The gospel's freed him from those things. Um, the gospel's given him uh, a loving disposition. Look at this in verse 8. He's hospitable. It's just a word that means that he welcomes people into his life. He sees that his possessions and time are not his own, right? He gives them to others. Uh, he loves what is good. And I, I want to pause here for a second. Just notice... Uh, Nobody makes themselves love the right things. It's really, it's really tempting to make this like a list of stuff you got to do well to lead. And uh, I think a better way to see this is this is evidence that the gospel of Jesus has worked in someone's life. That, that, that truth, right, that, that, that Jesus died, rose again, and now, now invites his people to enjoy fellowship with him in the power of the Spirit. That truth begins to invade their lives. The, the Spirit has changed their affections. They love good things. Guys, you can be disciplined. You can work really hard. You can be a great teacher, excellent communicator, good leader, and still be arrogant, right? The gospel has to invade your life. So these, these, these men um, are gospel men. Their lives have been shaped. They are not perfect, but they have made progress. So they're men. They have gospel lives. And third... They have gospel loyalty. Look at, uh, look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be, get, be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Notice, uh, his teaching should be characterized by loyalty to the scriptures, loyalty to the doctrine handed down through generations. Um, not that he has great illustrations, okay, that he's funny, that he's a really gifted communicator, that he compels people's attention. No, primarily that he's loyal to the gospel of grace. That in his teaching, he, he presents Jesus. He applies the gospel to life. Okay, um, here's the idea. Because, like Titus 2 says, the gospel brings salvation and trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Because that's true. The gospel doesn't just save us, it transforms us. The people who lead the church should be men who have begun to be transformed by the gospel. They're not perfect, they're in progress, but they've made some progress. Okay, so I, most of you have a question in your mind that you've been thinking about this whole time. All right, Leland, I'm not a pastor. I don't think I ever will be. What in the world does this have to do with me? All right, that's a great question, okay? Um, the, this, this passage applies to you. I just want to say that. It does. Um, let me answer your question with a question, okay? What are you looking for in your leaders? We all have expectations in the people who lead us in the church. We may not say them out loud. Uh, we, may not, we may not actually have ever articulated them, okay? But we respond to them in ways that reveal that we have certain expectations. What do you expect? What do you look for? Um, do you want the flashy, gifted guy who's got a super clear vision, very organized? Um, we see here that what God values in a leader, what he loves in a leader, is primarily that their lives and their loyalty and doctrine have been shaped by Jesus. That's the main thing. A lot of us are tempted because we live in America and we love excellence and we approach church like Chick-fil-A, we have all these extra things that we want our leaders to do. 
We want them to be super organized. We want them to give us 10 quick, easy ways that we can jump in and get plugged in and serve immediately. We want them to have super wonderful, hilarious stories and illustrations, quick applications. Don't, they don't teach too long, okay? Don't ever go over 30 minutes or we're all going to leave, right? right. All, all those things. We don't say them. We don't say those things, okay? Um, they better remember my freaking birthday. I better get a phone call, you know, right? Uh, I had a guy in my office the, this past week, and uh, he was joking, and I appreciate he was joking. He said this on a smile on his face. He goes, he goes wait. You, you can't just solve all my problems like you can't you can't you can't just do that I'm like I'm like no man I'm a human I can't solve your problems you know uh, some people they don't say it but they expect their leaders to solve their problems and uh, what I want to say is I would encourage you guys to value in leaders what God values if you look around I'm not talking about me but if you look around this church and you see pastors older guys and they have two things their lives look like Jesus and they are loyal to the gospel you should rejoice. And if you have other criticisms of them, you should perhaps speak. All leaders need good feedback. But perhaps um, think twice. But I will say really quickly, uh, I would like, so I, I'm, I'm an elder or a pastor at this church, and uh, I would like to invite you all uh, to help me live out what this passage commands. If you see, so I, I really, again, just want to side back here. If you, if you come up and say, Leland, here, I got an idea, all right? I really, one thing you're doing wrong, we really need to have man night out in the woods, okay? All right, listen, I'll be honest. I'm going to put that down here on my list, okay? Like, it'll be, I'll put it on the list, okay? But it'll be way down here, all right? But if you come to me and say, Leland, I saw you interact with that guy, and to be honest, man, that was pretty quick-tempered of you, right? Like, I, I love that, okay? The, the, the Proverbs say that faithful are the wounds of a friend. Like, I want you. Nobody wins, okay, if, if pastors don't live this out. Nobody wins if, if I let my children go crazy and be disobedient and don't discipline them, right? Nobody wins if I don't love my wife well. Or if, I don't, if, you're, if you're in this Sunday school classroom and you go three or four Sundays and never hear about Jesus and his work and him inviting you to salvation and to life, I want you to tell me that, okay? And other, other pastors want to hear that. Again, what the scriptures require of me, I want you to help me live that out. So I want to invite you guys. Speak into my life. Um, finally, value gospel leaders help them, um, and submit to them. Again, what do leaders do? They lead. What do people in relation do? What do people do in relation to leaders? They follow, okay? But again, this is hard. We don't like submission. That word is ye, okay? Um, but I think it starts first by joining the church, by owning your relationship with the local church, not being someone who just enjoys it but doesn't really serve or come, all right? Uh, it also involves when, when you ask for counsel from a pastor, you should at least 85% consider listening to it, okay? Uh, and again, this is, this is just people in general. There's no one in particular, all right? I always want to say that, but I, I've talked to a lot of people in general who they come to me with an issue, they get, they get counsel, and they don't say this to me, but their response is kind of like, I'll take that under advisement, you know? But what I really want was you just to affirm what I wanted to do anyways, right? So anyways, don't be that person, okay? Submit to your leaders, value what God values. One more thing about this list. Whether you are a pastor, a man, woman, um, wherever you're at, if you're a Christian, you should aim to have these qualities characterize your life. Just notice, again, what are these qualities? All right? These qualities are simply the gospel-bearing fruit in someone's life. They are simply what happens when someone has a relationship to Jesus and they're pursuing him and the Spirit is working. 
their arrogance begins to fade. They become self-controlled. They discipline themselves for godliness, right? They may not be a gifted teacher, but they're loyal to the gospel. They can tell you what the gospel of Jesus is. And so wherever you are this morning, you've been a Christian for a month, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing, okay? You'd be shocked if you would just obey what you know today and seek Jesus, how much progress you can make in a couple of years. Some of you guys have been walking with Jesus for years, and there's something on on this list that just eats your lunch, all right? Money or drink controls you. Arrogance or anger controls you. And what I want to encourage you to do is if you look at Jesus and you see him laying his life down for you and you trust him and you walk with him and you receive the life he gives, he will produce fruit in your life. Aim for this, this life. Pick a quality on this list. Guy or girl, wherever you're at, aim for it. Okay, so first thing, to make the church right, you have to get the leaders right. Titus has got to appoint godly leaders. Good shepherds make healthy sheep. Fences make safe children who can run around and play. Trellises make good vines. But, but shepherd's a good image here because uh, shepherds need to feed the sheep to keep them healthy. That's a, a biblical image of a, a pastor, a shepherd, okay? Uh, but sometimes shepherds also need to shoot the wolves, right? You don't just need to feed the sheep. You've got to shoot the wolves sometimes. And uh, this next part of the passage, to get leaders right, Titus doesn't just need to appoint godly leaders. He needs to rebuke and to silence the ungodly ones. There's an edge to this passage. Again, one that's a little bit uncomfortable to us. Uh, but uh, I'll give you an illustration. Uh, anybody here ever read the book Operation World? So it's one of the coolest books. I'd recommend all of you guys at least going to their website. But it's a prayer guide to the nations of the world. So it's really cool because... Uh, before reading this book, I realized I didn't know anything about any other nation besides America and Great Britain, right? I knew the royal family, and I knew American history, right? But uh, this, this little book will give you uh, like a one- or two-page summary of the history, economics, and religious status of every nation in the world. Um, and so anyways, I had a seminary class that, that one of the requirements was you, you go through this book and you pray, pray through it, pray for a nation every day for three months. And I did that. And it was wonderful. I learned so much. And the best part was at the end of the descriptions, they gave you prayer requests from missionaries on the ground in those nations. And here's the interesting part. Uh, Top five prayer requests, okay, of each nation. In the top five, almost without fail, there were two big ones. The need for godly leaders, first, that's verses five to nine. And then second, prayers for help against the false teaching. Everywhere in the world, wherever Christianity is named, there is some perversion of it. In America, we've got the prosperity gospel, right? We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, other places in the world, in Africa, a lot of times it's syncretism. People will just combine going to the witch doctor with walking with Jesus. All over the world, though, one of the biggest issues, aside from getting godly leaders, is false teaching. So this passage uh, commands Titus to search these guys out so that he can silence and rebuke them. Look at verse, uh, verse 9 again. Uh, the elders are, should hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so they can give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10 gives you the reason for verse 9. So why should the elder be able to rebuke people who contradict um, sound doctrine? Because, verse 10, there are many, these are the false teachers, many people, many false teachers, who are insubordinate, 
empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. In Crete, in history, uh, these people were uh, what is called, what were called Judaizers. They were people who claimed to be Christians, and they basically said two things. They said, first, Jesus is great, but if you really want to please God, you got to go back and obey all those Old Testament laws. You got to get circumcised, you can't eat pork, you got to observe the Sabbath day, okay? Um, and just a uh, sidebar, um, if, if you're uh, new to the faith and you're not sure how that works with the Old Testament and New Testament, really quickly, uh, the Old Testament did have laws like that. God's people before Jesus really weren't supposed to eat pork. They really had to obey the Sabbath, right? Um, we believe that when Jesus came, that his death and resurrection fulfilled the requirements of the law. Jesus said in uh, Matthew 5 that I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So um, that's, that's the idea. And again, if, you, uh, if you're talking to somebody about Jesus, they'll probably raise this objection at some point in time. Why, don't you, why do you still eat barbecue, you Christian, you hypocrite? That's, that's how I'd explain it. Jesus fulfills it, okay? If you, want, if you want more info, you can read Galatians or Hebrews. But anyways, these false teachers uh, were saying, Jesus is great, but if you really want to please God, you got to go back and start doing this other stuff too. And then, which is even more interesting, uh, they, didn't just, uh, they didn't just do that. They didn't just have the wrong teaching. They were evildoers. Look at this uh, in verse 11. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're greedy. The whole reason they're teaching this false gospel is because they want money. Uh, look at verse uh, 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. If having a gospel life is a requirement for a leader, they don't have that. Their rebellion against Paul and his teaching is really rebellion against God. They're arrogant. They won't listen. And um, what is Titus to do with these guys? Is he to go out to coffee, try to win them over, right? Is he to exercise his people skills, right? Um, to have a Bible study full of false teachers to convince them? No. He's actually to rebuke them sharply and to silence them. There's no... Uh, there's no democracy when it comes to false teaching in the church. It's not like, hey, if you got five guys who think this and five guys who think that, you just got to, you know, coexist. No. Um, when it comes to gospel issues, uh, you rebuke and silence false teachers. Um, just to note, if you're wondering what this little proverb is in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Uh, that does not mean, okay, that uh, if you're a pure person, that everything literally is pure to you, okay? Game of Thrones is not pure to you, even if you're a Christian, all right? If you're watching that, I'm sorry to get in your grill, okay? It's not pure, okay? Um, the idea there, all right, this word pure uh, could be translated clean. It's just saying the false teachers focused on this ritual purity, this ritual cleanness. The idea here is if you know Jesus, if you walk with him, if he's purified your heart, okay? All foods, all days are pure to you, okay? That's uh, something Titus can teach to contradict these false teachers. Okay, so let's uh, think about applying this really quickly. Uh, I would encourage you to embrace the goodness, all right, and the kindness of leaders in the church sharply rebuking false teaching. Now, I'm one of those guys, I'm nice, okay? When dude man gets on stage and starts calling people out by name, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. 
Uh, we don't like confrontation. A lot of you guys have friends, and they said to you, hey, God told me to do this. And in your head, you know, first, it's not wise. Second, it's forbidden in Scripture. And then you're like, okay, hope that goes well for you, right? We don't do conflict, right? We don't, we don't get in people's faces, even if it's about the truth. Uh, this passage is really sharp. Uh, but let me, I want to explain to you why this is so good. And I'll just tell you my story a little bit. I, uh, I became a Christian um, in college, my, in the middle of my freshman year. And I was a... Uh, uh, I really came out of a background where I really did not know my right hand from my left. Like, I started at zero, okay? And uh, I, like many, my, many young Christians, I struggled a lot, and people in my life saw me struggle. And so uh, people who were close to me, who loved me but who weren't Christians, uh, decided to get me a really thoughtful Christmas present. And uh, I think what they did is they went to the Christianity section of Barnes & Noble, okay? And so uh, under, uh, under the tree on Christmas Day for me was Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now. If you guys don't know um, who, uh, who Joel Osteen is, um, I want to be gracious here, but he's a false teacher, uh, probably a heretic. He preaches something called the prosperity gospel, which basically says if you love Jesus and you obey him and you have enough faith, God's going to make your life really legit. You're going to be rich. You're going to be healthy. Bad stuff's not going to happen to you. And at the worst, the prosperity gospel says the reason bad stuff is happening to you is because you don't have enough faith. All right, and guys, that's from the pit of hell. All right, that's a lie. Um, if you're reading any of his stuff, burn it. All right, I'll help you. Come to my house. The prosperity gospel takes the cross and it treats it like your personal ATM. All right, it's evil. Anyways, okay, but picture me there. I'm a baby Christian with a bomb in my hand. All right, I read this book. I enjoy it. It really speaks to me. All right, at the best, it's going to wreck my Christian life and shipwreck it. Okay, at the worst, it might lead me astray forever. So what do I need? All right. I need a buddy who sees me with that book and who pries it from my fingers and burns it in front of me, okay? I need a pastor, right, who is willing to get up on stage and say some really not fun stuff about Joel Olstein, so I can hear that, right? Again, another example. A year later, I had a, I had a lot of false teaching in my, in my younger days, okay? Um, this one's going to get in some of you people's, you're not going to like this, all right? Uh, but my ne next book I got that I personally found at Barnes & Noble myself, I started going there myself, great idea, okay? Just kidding. Uh, you should buy books on recommendation, I think. Anyways, uh, I found John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. Okay, it has this great picture, running in the wilderness. Okay, on the cover. All right, and I'm not going to call John Eldridge a heretic. It's not isn't serious as Joel Olstein. However, when it comes to what it means to be a man, he is a false teacher. All right, he takes the worst impulses of masculinity. Okay, to get away from family and civilization and people, to go out into the woods, break stuff, burn things, be manly. Right, he takes that. And he makes it the heart of biblical masculinity. And uh, so what I did for two years is I ran around trying to find this masculinity that did not exist, right? And all I needed to do was open my Bible and see Jesus serving people. Hey, guys, if you're a John Eldridge fan, I just want to say this real quickly. God called Adam to a garden, not the woods. He called him to a wife and kids in a garden, an organized, orderly place in family life. He called him to society. Okay, so if, again, we can talk later if that offends you, but I was so misled for so long by him that I've got a little chip on my shoulder, I guess. But anyways, what did I need as a little baby Christian running around with my wild at heart, okay? I needed a buddy to tell me that's really stupid, right? I needed a pastor who'd say it publicly. Um, so anyways, all that being said, if you're someone who's nice, if you think it's not nice of Paul, to tell Titus to go around silencing and rebuking people. Just know 
that the whole purpose is for the health of the church, and not just the health of the church. Notice, um, sorry, this is verse uh, 13. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The sharp rebuke's not just for the congregation to be healthy. It's in love towards the false teachers. And I just want to encourage you guys, if I see you guys telling me that Jesus was, uh, you know, a created being, I'm going to come sharply rebuke you, right, uh, for your soul, right? Um, it's a good thing. also want to just encourage you to think through, are you trusting in a false gospel? Have you embraced a false teacher? Are you here this morning thinking that you're right with Jesus because you try really hard? You're doing the right thing. And if that's you guys, you have not embraced the gospel. The gospel says, man, that you are right with God only, only because of the perfect life and death of Jesus Christ. You trust in that. You rest in that. You get everything. And all the Christian life flows from that place. And so if you're sitting here, maybe you've drifted a little bit. Maybe, maybe you're not totally sure. And you're thinking, i got to try really hard. Or, or you're thinking, hey, this is, this is the other perversion, right? God will forgive me, so I'll just do what I want to. That's not the gospel, guys. Right? Jesus calls us into life with God. If you trust in a false gospel, repent. Okay, so when the gospel is applied, the church shines. When the gospel is applied to leadership, when we appoint people, not because they're flashy, gifted, cool, speak really great, have a great ideas, okay, but because they're godly and they love the gospel. Right? When the church submits that and values that, when false teachers are rebuked in silence, the church thrives. It's beautiful. It's good. Let me tell you a story. Uh, Richard Baxter is one of my heroes. I love him. Nobody really knows about him. No books are written about him, really. Uh, he's, he lived in the 1700s, okay? And here's, here's Richard Baxter's first church. Imagine uh, you're going to go work at a church. Here's his first church, okay? It's full of about two to 300 uh, drunk unbelievers, okay? His town was famous for the way they would, like, riot and drink and fight and all these things. And the pastor of the church currently is a guy who is so lazy, okay, he's so lazy that his, his only responsibility was to preach, okay, and he was so lazy that he would hire one of these town drunks to preach for him. So, so there's a record, there's a record in history of, 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 of at Richard Baxter, the church he was going into, okay, of a guy getting into the pulpit like, like hammer drunk and preaching an incomprehensible sermon. So Baxter walks into this place, okay, riotous, drunkards, the first thing he does, all right, he is so humble, all right, that even though he's the senior pastor, he lets this evildoer before him keep the head pastor's salary, and he just lives on the assistance money. Over the next decade, in the midst of really terrible health problems, really bad poverty, I, actually, Baxter lived so poor, I, I got to point this out, Baxter lived so poor that when he was arrested later in life for his faith, he found the accommodations enjoyable. Okay? That's how poor he lived. He gave so much of his money away to people in his community. Okay? So he had terrible health, his poverty, and almost constant strife from all these terrible people he was trying to minister to. Over 10 years, he preaches the gospel, he models this humble life, and family by family in his town, he catechizes, instructs, pleads, rebukes, until uh, political circumstances in the 1700s had him arrested. But anyways, a century after he died, Okay. Another famous preacher goes to this no-name country parish, right? and here's what he says. He says that, I noticed the sweet savor, that's the smell, the sweet savor 
of good Mr. Baxter's doctrine, works, and discipline. A hundred years later, a hundred years later, his life is still looming. Just one godly, humble, gospel-centered life. Generations. We should, we should pray God would lead up people like that here. Um, but listen to me. I, I, I want you to hear this. Man or woman, leader or not, pastors in your future, no way pastors in your future, okay? If you give yourself to developing the qualities of a gospel-centered life, and if you devote yourself to loving and learning the gospel, your life will leave a sweet savor. People will talk about you years from now. You'll, you'll be remembered. Let's pray God would do that in us. Lord, uh, thank you for the, the goodness of the scriptures and uh, just how you're kind and how you um, just reveal the structure of the church to us for our good. We pray you'd help us to value what you value, to love what you love, and to really just pursue uh, the qualities of a godly life. I pray that in Jesus' name.